welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I am excited. You listen all the way through the episode, or if you just want to fast forward to the end, I'm going to start posting opportunities for A, practice ownership, and B, associateships with folks that I know around the country that are doing great things. And I'm going to do a quick read of the opportunity, have links in the show notes to those opportunities. And I hope for someone out there, it can be a great connection to find either that practice ownership dream opportunity and or a great associateship that leads to the balance, the work life that you're looking for. So with that, excited to launch that. There will be more over time as more owners start uh, reaching out, but I am excited to do that. So check that out at the end. Don't leave too fast after the guest wraps up. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right, we are back and I have a third time with us guest, Jason Coppins of Coppins Business Strategy and, or strategies, sorry, more than one strategy that Jason has. And as anyone that's listened to the podcast knows that that is very true. So Jason, I really am excited to chat again. You've been a guest two other times. So episode 17, which is a blueprint for growth, which was in 2019. And then we did an episode earlier this year in April that was every vet under charges. I will share with the audience what I shared with you, but that was the fastest downloaded episode in the highest downloaded episode I've ever done. So kudos because people found it super valuable, which why I was like, I have to chat again. So thank you for carving out time. Always a pleasure to chat. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. And it's great to be back third time. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Just for the audience, I've asked Jason if I can find a way. I'm probably going to try to get him to chat quarterly just because there's so much good information that's out there. But with that, some of the things that you're seeing and we chatted before we click record, I'd love to kind of kick it off with globally what you're seeing. And you shared a little bit on kind of ACT and invoicing and then thinking about getting back to the basics. So I guess I'll tease those things and let you run with it. And we'll unpack a couple of those things as we go through. So just generally speaking, over the last several months, a couple of things have happened this year. Last year uh, was really unique. We were all super busy working when we ERs had, you know, 24-hour waits and stuff like that. People were not taking on new clients. That was our last year. 2021 was a huge year in the vet industry. And so coming into 2022, 
what's this year going to look like? And playing out over the last six or nine months, we've definitely seen a transition. We're still seeing really strong revenues, but what we're noticing is while our ACTs are up, and that's really helping us with revenues, invoice counts in a lot of practices. And again, globally, if you aggregate them together, invoice counts are going down a little, which is interesting. So we're not quite seeing as many people coming in as often as we were last year. Kind of coupling in with that, we're also seeing a lot of the fact that you know the people that came in last summer were new clients and came into the practice. We're seeing a lot of them not coming back for their annuals within that this summer, this year. And so it's been over 12 months since we've seen a lot of them. We're now into the fall pretty healthily, and we're just not seeing a lot of those people coming back in in that one-year time frame for any services. So we're losing touch with some people that could make us have a really strong patient base. At the same point, we're seeing a little bit of a lowering the number of new clients that place they're seeing. They're not bad numbers. They're just lower than they were last year. And so as we're starting to see the number of people not returning and rising, the number of new people kind of dropping a little bit. And again, this is kind of across the board. I have clinics that are, are going against this trend, but just kind of across the board and seeing that we're getting to the point where our patient bases are not shooting up like they were last year. They're kind of leveling off a little bit more. And our invoices are up, our invoices are down. Our revenues are still looking really good in spite of that because of all the price increases we've been doing. So it's kind of masking some of the problems that are happening underneath. So top line revenue looks great. Everything's kicking along. We're still really busy because we have a whole lot of backlog there. But things are softening a bit out there in a couple different ways. So that's one of the biggest things I'm seeing. And so that leads into some of the basics talk. But if you had a question too, we can run off of that before we get into all that. I think one of the questions that we ask a lot when kind of reviewing information with practice owners is how far are you scheduling out right now? Like for new patients or how are you seeing people with the schedule? Do you have any good rules of thumb and how has that changed with some of the clinics you're working with and seeing like is it normal that that's starting to shrink and getting back to what is kind of pre-pandemic or is it still hey it's two to three weeks to get an appointment or i'm not even taking you patients at the moment it's coming back i just getting a little tighter now again within the last year and a half another thing that helped out a little bit is hopefully if people were looking for a vet we're able to find them and open up that capacity a little bit more so I have practices that now have one or two openings a day. I have practices that are still booked out two months. But I'm feeling like that pressure is not there as much as it was before. And we're starting to have people that are coming back into that two to three week span instead of the four to eight week span. We're also running into a situation where there's less people I'm talking to that are not taking new clients. We're, we're able to start doing that again. We're kind of shifting back into a little closer to that normal we had before the pandemic hit. And so I'm definitely seeing those numbers come down. I'm not hearing anyone saying, I am desperately looking for new people right now. I cannot fill my appointment books at all. We're not to that point, but we're just starting to eat up a little bit of that backlog, I feel, out there. What do you think is a good, and again, I know it always depends, just like when people ask financial questions, like, well, it depends. But what's a good happy medium do you feel like that is sustainable in the future with how scheduling should be looking out in the future? Cool. If I could, I would like to have all surgeries booked within a month. I'd like to have all wellness booked within two to three weeks. And I'd like to bring in a sick patient within a day or so. So looking at kind of across the board at that, if I can do that, again, new clients too, I'd like to bring them in within two to three days. I'd like to be able to kind of get them in, especially if they're uh, not sick, we can, get, we can wait that three to five days. But trying to kind of keep them in the thing where the main thing I don't want anyone to think is, okay, that's not fast enough. I need to go somewhere else. We're trying to prevent that. Surgeries are usually things we can push out unless they're more of an emergency. If we're doing dentistry, if we're doing spades and neuters, we can kind of schedule those. And a little bit of weight on that seems to be fine and not an issue. 
for wellness, again, we can schedule those ahead of time, get that two to three week area without much of a problem. I like to have that buffer there of having two to three weeks. I don't like having like one or two days and then I'm open. And then the sick though, I want to have a couple of slots every day so I can fill those quickly. And I don't want to get to the point where my six slots that I'm reserving on a daily basis are filled out two or three days in advance and I can't get people and I want to see and I have to refer them to an ER or something like that. So those are usually those areas I'm looking for. Perfect. And then going back to things kind of just cooling off a little bit and talking about dormant patients, when you think about getting back to the basics, you want to help remind some people of just things that you would encourage them to do. Because again, it's been everyone's beating down your door to come in. So it's easy to let things kind of slide. Whereas now you get a little bit more breathing room. You're like, oh yeah, we do need to do those things again. So I think this also dovetails really well into an efficiency talk, but let's start with the dormant side of it. So we have, we have these patients and these clients that we saw last summer that aren't coming in right now. Sometimes in magnitudes of hundreds of them, depending on the size of the practice. And I know that when you look at different people's take on lapsing clients and dormant patients, they will look at that as something that's 18 months, two years, like that. I like to keep that tight at a year because if I'm not seeing them back for their annual vaccines or an annual preventative care check, I'm starting to lose touch with them more than I want. And so there is kind of four versions of that that happen. Either, you know, worst case scenario, pets died in that time. Uh, but the other ones, they moved out of the areas, something that happens. Concerning one is if they go to another vet. But if it's not any of those three, the fourth one is they just haven't had the time or money or need to come back in. And those are the ones I really want to target. So they're still our vet. They still have their pet. They still want to come to us. They're still in the area, but they either don't have the money for it just yet, or they're concerned about that, or they don't see the need to it, or they're kind of worried about some things coming up. And we're not seeing those pets. And the concerning part about that is that means I'm not catching problems when they're small. I'd like from every standpoint, I want to see problems when they're small. I want to catch them in stage one, not stage four of things. And since pets are not great at communicating when they're feeling under the weather or sick, or whatever else like that, I've had a number of stories, especially before, where people were like, everything was fine. We're sitting around for two or three years. And all of a sudden, we look really sick. We bring them in and we're on death's door. I hate having to have those conversations. So kind of looking at that and bringing that back to the basics, I want to start reaching out to people around you. I want to have our reminders in place. I want to be able to be having a reception team as we're starting to free up some time, start making those calls to those people that are kind of hitting that year or 13 month mark and start saying what's going on. There's different windows I want to create where we're communicating with them in different mediums, sometimes electronically, sometimes postcards, sometimes phone calls, all kind of based on trying to reach them however they need to be reached or whatever they like most, try to get them to come back in so we can kind of prevent those bad days and stay on top of things. Again, hopefully keep the cost smaller if we can see them more frequently about minor things than big thing. We need a huge surgery or something like that that comes with it. The other part with that that kind of dovetails into is a lot of the forward booking piece. I mean, forward booking wasn't a thing. We didn't want to book any more on our schedule for a while. People were very happy to kind of forget that as we're coming back into these times, going back to that really excellent patient care and those core processes and the basics that run a good practice, it's starting to, it's a good time to start talking to people again about, okay, Let's talk about when you're going to come back into the practice and when you're going to see us again. If you're booked out a lot, I like to do forward booking anyway, just because I tell clients, we can book your appointment now and you can choose the doctor you want, the day you want, the time you want. If you call me the day before I need to get in, you're going to get the doctor I want. You're going to get the time slot I want. You're going to get the day I want. Let's work around your schedule instead of mine. So let's book this ahead of time. But I think a lot of those kind of fundamental basics, let's not lose our people that we have, our clients. Let's make sure we're forward booking. Let's do an excellent patient care and get back to a lot of that core stuff right now. 
Yeah. And I love that. And I think it'll feed into the conversation on like just training. Once you bring people onto the team, like giving them some of the language. So the person that's making the call, I love what you talked about is like scheduling, like you can have some fun with it and joke and people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like it is, I'm busy. They're willing to work with me. That's great. I want that. But then also I don't want a huge bill that's unexpected. I want something that's a little bit more manageable and bite-sized. And so coming in more often, making that to where we can manage it, like you said, you know, level one versus level four. And so just giving the team the way to communicate more effectively in some easy approachable language makes a lot more sense than, hey, you haven't been here in 12 months, like what's going on, right? Like you want to make sure that they can do that in a tactful, nice, fun, but also like the culture of your business, making sure that it fits. So, so many people have, again, number one complaint, right? Hiring and retaining talent, but then thinking about training and how you actually bring people on because it's such a task to go and find people. And then once they're there, you have to make sure that they're put in a position for success. So I would love to kind of walk through a little bit of what you're starting to see from how folks are doing a good job at training. And once they're bringing someone via onboarding, what that looks like. So training and onboarding is a big topic that we're talking about a lot these days in a couple of different fields because people are hiring a lot. And kind of looking at that, there's two pieces of it. There's the onboarding, the training. And looking at that, the technical training is always a piece. We need to get them able to perform the tasks of the job. But onboarding is also about the culture and making them feel welcome and making them feel part of the team and that whole part. Back when I worked with one of my previous companies, we were doing like power maintenance and fixing servers. And we were so desperate for people. We we're hiring people all over the place. And we actually had a manager tell a new hire their first day, here's your tool bag. I've heard you're here to save my tail. Let's go out on the field and help me out. I'm like, that's a horrible onboarding experience. And I hear things like that too. Like we just need somebody. We need somebody to help out. We're, we're running behind. And if I can hire an assistant, I just need to get them in here and they need to help out as quickly as they can. I talk to people a lot about what that onboarding looks like. And we talk about it in different windows. Like, okay, you've offered them the position between that point and usually two weeks when they start. What does that piece look like? Do you just fire and forget and then hope they show up in two weeks? Because I hear people saying, now I've hired several people and a couple of them didn't even show up for their first day. So we did all this work to hire them. Why aren't we kind of walking them through that process from the minute that we both agree that you're going to come work for me? Let's start walking through that. I tell people what to expect coming up. You're going to get an email from me here. We're going to send you some of the paperwork ahead of time to fill out or give you links online to do it. This is your first day. You're going to come in at this time. You're going to meet with this person. This is what you're going to wear. We're going to have a schedule for you. And I'm going to give you that schedule ahead of time. And I usually touch base about one week before. How are you doing? How's it going? Looking forward to coming in, in um, you know, Monday to kind of kick this off. Any questions or anything else like that? And so we kind of really make sure that we are in touch with them. We're not losing sight that they didn't get some other offer three days later for an extra dollar an hour and we lost them. I like to have that relationship all the way through because they're now members of my team. Even though they haven't logged their first hour, they're on my team now. I built a very extensive first week onboarding from day one being the most extensive on from there. And so the goal for the first week is, first of all, to get a sense of who you're working with and what's going on. So I spend a decent amount of time right up front. I'm going to meet them myself if I'm the practice manager. Whoever that team lead is or practice manager is going to meet them at the door. I don't want them wandering in trying to figure it out. At 8 a.m., when I told them to be there, I am standing up in the lobby ready to say hi. And then I want to make that solid first impression. As you walk them around the practice, introduce them to everyone. Everyone in my practice knows their name and that they're coming in that day or position they're in. I've had a lot of practices like 
oh, who are you? And that's just a horrible first impression for somebody. So we want them to make them feel at home. And the impression I want them to leave with at the end of the first day is, thank goodness I made this choice. And so my goal is to say, how can I get from that point? Did I master a certain skill? I want them to feel like they made the right choice and they're on the right team. That first impression is very valuable for me. Usually we'll do something fun or unique, like we used to get donuts and we'd write their name and icing on the donut. Even if they didn't eat the donut, it was just a way that was unique and special to welcome them on and say hi. And then we're going to do a quick practice tour. We're going to take care of the paperwork. We're going to talk to them about things. I'm going to give them all the resources. I, here's your week packet. This is all the things that are going to happen throughout the week. You're going to do lunch with these people and I'll have them meet with doctors sometimes and people on their team and other things for lunches throughout the week. So they get to know their team, be a part of it. I will have them shadow and work with different people just to kind of learn what's going on. And we really start building training on their pace. So two of the big questions I like to ask up front. Number one is, how do you learn best? We're going to put you in here, but our goal is to get you trained up. So you tell me, and I've had people say, I like to do it. I like to be hands-on as quick as possible. And I've had one say, I really want to research and understand before I take a step. The other thing I usually like to get into a little bit is, how can you make this experience pleasant for you? And how can we support you through this training process? Not only how do you learn best, but how do you want that support? I mean, how can we kind of line this up for you? So people like to shadow for a while a lot of times. That kind of goes into how they like to be trained. We like to do that. We also like to lay out how we're going to transition them to the front if they're going to be uh, not just shadowing, but hopefully taking the hands-on approach if they're an assistant. We talk through how to, that's going to play. And then I give that same feedback to whoever their mentor is. And I usually have a dedicated two mentors because of scheduling things that are always going to be their go-to people. So that if they have a problem, they can go to either one of their mentors or me at any point in time. And we just wrap this little bubble of help around them to walk them through this. We have a training schedule of who they're going to be with, what they're going to be learning. And then we kind of say, you know, for that, let us know. If you feel like you're mastering stuff, go ahead and let's go faster. If you feel like you're not mastering things, we'll slow down. You don't have to learn everything in this exact amount of time. We're going to kind of ramp you up as fast as we can that you're comfortable with. And for anything we do, we have a checklist of here's the things we're going to be working on. Here's kind of the order we want to work on them in. Once you think you can do it and I think you can do it, then we're going to consider you written off and capable there. If either of those things aren't true, if I don't think you quite got it yet, we're going to keep working on it. If I think you got it and you don't think you do, we still won't write you off. We'll go back through it again and again until you feel you're comfortable and I feel that you're all prepared and ready to go with it. So we kind of walk through that. This kind of some generic stuff, but we'll have a book. And their book will have all the training checklists. They're going to have their first week schedule in it, all the documentation to back them up. And we're just going to wrap that success around them with these people here to support them and really help them through that process. And that's how we kind of do the onboarding and start mixing in that training piece into it. But I really want to make a great impression. At the end of the first day, I'm meeting with them. At the end of the first week, I'm meeting with them. I check in with their book every two weeks at the worst. And I sit down with their mentors and then we go through the progress and talk about how it's going, what we need to change and tweak and stuff like that. And all that comes down into just, I don't want to just haphazardly have them show up, throw them with somebody, hope that goes well, and never check back in. I want it to be intentional all the way through. I want the people who are training them and the new hires to know what the plan is. I want them to get feedback throughout that entire process until they're ramped up. And I want them to feel like they're supported and taken care of the whole time. Yeah, I have a couple things I want to unpack. I think the first one is, would you say that, again, it's going to depend on the position, but would you want the same person training every time? And then if so, is there anything that the office is providing that person's doing the extra work of like the training and kind of the handholding of those new hires? 
And how do you have that conversation if you're the practice manager, if you're the owner to say, hey, Jason, you're the best at this. I really want you to train the new people and like making sure that they're bought in and not like, oh, yeah, I guess I have to work with this person. Yeah, I talk with everyone because training is interesting because it's kind of like a management ship. Your best technician might be a horrible manager. Your best technician might be a horrible trainer. And so one of the things I always look for is I can take someone with a little less of a skill level who's a great trainer. And so I need to assess from my standpoint as a practice manager who's good at training and who's interested in training. And I'm hoping I have enough people that check both boxes that I can actually do some training. Sometimes we get in the situation where I'm like, you're the only one who knows it. And we got to get more people who know it so we don't have to do it just with you anymore. So I need you to train them. And then I have to wrap around and be a little closer to them for that training. But we're going to definitely make sure that we can hopefully understand you know, what makes a good trainer. And we'll talk about that with them. I mean, the goal with that is for them to understand that if I'm working with somebody, what does it look like to be a good trainer? And I don't think anyone ever covers that when they tell an employee, why don't you go train so-and-so? So let's go through some of those key points that you have to do if you're a great trainer. This is all about them learning. It's not about getting a job done. So rule number one, they don't leave your side ever. You don't send them to go hold a dog in the corner because you have too much work to do. They don't, you guys count as one individual the entire time. One of you is working, the other one's watching. That's it. I know we all need help. I know we're behind. I know we're understaffed, but we can either do this poorly and have to do it for three months, or we can do it really well for two weeks and get enough of a foundation that we can start building on it that we can get some real help in. And we're not going to throw someone into the wolves and put them in a bunch of situations where they're untrained, don't know what to do, and are messing up and hate their job or anything else like that. We're going to have you as much as possible work as a single unit. While you're there with them, you're going to be talking all the time. You're going to verbalize everything you're doing. Not only are you going to talk about what you're doing, you're going to talk about why you're doing it. The why is super important. And so you're going to have that dichotomy there. You're just going to be talking all the time, giving them the information, and you're going to be doing it first. And then you guys are going to negotiate when to kind of transition that over for them to do it. All things that have to happen. When you're walking in front of a client, you're going to tell them every time you're going to introduce the new person, explain to them that you guys are working together as a team today as part of the training. That way they're always set up. If something happens, it's okay because the client already knows the plan and everything else like that. We're going to make it as comfortable as possible through that entire process. So I'm looking for trainers who enjoy that, enjoy talking to people and coaching them and can express things succinctly and well and really understand where that balance is and can work on being a great trainer. So I need to find those people and also the ones who are interested. Hopefully they're the same and kind of go through that. And then a lot of times people are pretty excited on the staff if they can train. People enjoy sharing their knowledge a lot of times. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. And the other piece of it is this is all helping them out. So faster they can train somebody well and get them up to speed, the sooner that they can have help in that exam room or help in the back treatment area or help up front. So this kind of works out for everyone's thing. There are some practices I talk to that will give an extra training stipend, an extra dollar to an hour during the training times. And again, if that works in your practice, that's awesome. That's a good way to say thank you or something near the end. You don't have to do it. Most practices I know don't. But if you want to give an extra thank you or if that's important for staff, a little thank you for that because they're going to work hard for a bit and have two jobs simultaneously. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And, and so if we have the room to do it and that's important to staff, let's go ahead with that too. Perfect. And then you talked about a book and kind of building out the training. Do you think about you know, is that physical? Do you have practices that are using like a Slack or a Notion or some sort of online platform where it's easier to update and keep track of that and you can see it anywhere versus having the physical item? And is there a 
benefit or trade-offs on what you've seen work versus not work there? So I think electronic is good in almost every case. I'm a big fan of electronic. The one benefit to a hardcover book, and I've used them before too, really comes down to the fact that you can have it really close and use it anywhere. So if I'm back in the treatment room or something like that, and we're going through some things, we just need to talk for a second. If the computers are tied up, I don't have to try to find it on my drive somewhere. I have that physical thing. The other thing is I can take it home with me. And that's not always possible, depending on how networks are set up within a practice. And so there's a lot of protocols we put in there for our assistance, like what's our recommended vaccine policy? What's our recommended this? What's our new puppy visit look like? What's all these core recommendations? And that's in there as well. We can email them to them, but that physical book, those are there to reference or read during lunch when you're sitting in the lunchroom or something like that. And I've seen a lot of people use the books like that. It's also good to kind of get those initial checkoffs when people get there. There's so many systems that can automate that and put that online. And so if you're a heavy paperless office, I would totally go in that direction. There are systems that can automate a lot of that stuff. But if not, I like the physical books too. And I've seen a lot of people you know, decorate their books and little things like that and be kind of do something fun with it. And I enjoy that too. Perfect. And then you already kind of touched on the other one, which I can hear people already saying, I'm too busy. That's why we're hiring people. But I think you hit the nail on the head with explaining like, okay, we can do this for three months and do it wrong and just take forever, or we can really make a concerted effort and see some traction sooner. And I think that's the key point is you might have to take a step back to take two steps forward, but if you don't do that, then you're going to just stay in the same place the entire time. So if there's anything else you want to add there on addressing those questions, I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but I know people will use that as an excuse. Let me, let me, let me throw one thing in with, in with it then. So I have a new hire starting on Monday. I'm down three assistants. I have one assistant starting on Monday. On that Friday, for better or worse, I'm making it work. And I don't have that assistant here. So if I can make it work and survive, and maybe I've been surviving for a month or two, it's even more of an example. I can get through this. It's not fun. It's horrible at times, but I can make it through that and put it together the faster, the more I can give that and just extend it two more weeks. And again, training should really work on a, a core goal of ramping people up so they can be competent in tasks as quickly as possible. So we're always working on where the first five or six things I can teach you so you can start doing them and create some traction and help us out with stuff. And we can keep working on the rest of the things. And if we can get those, I mean, can we get you in there so we can get you right independently just doing the in-room stuff? for an assistant? Can we get you good for a CSR checking people in and out or answering the phone? Can we get you good on some of those things so you can start creating some traction and helping us? I would rather take the extra week or two to get really well ramped up on five or six of those things because then we can plug you in and then intermingle actually getting some work done with some training versus the whole thing of just, you know, just plowing in day one, they're doing it bad, they're making mistakes, we're trying to clean up after them, it's taking more time, everything's just kind of going a little rough. We were able to do it for X amount of time until we hired them just extend it two weeks and give them a good foundation, a great onboarding and help them kind of ramp up so they can really help you effectively instead of just piecemealing it and doing it as rough as they have to just because they don't understand it. Yeah, makes sense. And kind of continuing on the efficiency piece as where we've been as you know, most practices have been so busy. Are there services and I go to websites of anyone that we work with or anyone that I'm talking to and just like, I like to look. What are the things you highlight that you do? And sometimes the lists are ridiculously long. And then if you look at what actually drives revenue in the business, it's a much shorter, smaller list. Do you see for a lot of people, you know, efficiency of trying to do too much, not focusing enough? How do you help someone balance like, well, I'm doing this to lead to this? And are there 
generally, I guess, some things that are overlooked that could be potential revenue increasing activities that kind of get cast this side just because everyone is busy. And I know that's like four questions in one. So we can unpack them one by one. <laughs> I give this advice a lot because I go into clinics and observe them a lot. I'll tell you the number one way to raise revenue tomorrow without changing a single price. Go in and watch all of your doctors and how they work. And you're going to see why one doctor has a higher ACT than another. I've seen four different doctors work four different ways. It's not uncommon for me to see every single doctor in a practice, whether it be three doctors or seven doctors, all have their own method of doing things. And some are great at different parts, but there's not a lot of uniformity. And I can usually, watching that, say, there's five or six things I can steal from each one of them that if we all did them, I could raise the revenue tomorrow. There's one doctor who believes wholeheartedly in dentistry, and they talk to every single client about dentistry and getting that going, and their dental compliance is through the rug. The next one doesn't care about it, but they're going through really fast appointments, but they're really great at estimate compliance. So they really take the time to slow down at the end and walk the client through what they're recommending and why, and they get a lot of estimate compliance. The next one is big on labs and really doing the diagnostic work and explain why those are really important. And so they have these different things they're good at, and I have some doctors that aren't good at most of those things, and they could use a lot of help. So one of the biggest things you can do is take a practice manager, or a doctor, somebody, and just have them observe all the doctors in different flows. Because you will see drastically different flows, drastically different levels of expertise. And clients are getting the same experience across the board. They give every doctor they sit with focuses on a little different things. That's not great because now you have a bunch of independent businesses working in your practice instead of your practice's way of doing things. So looking at those types of things, look within those room flows and those appointment flows. What are they looking for? In what questions they ask them the subjective? What are they doing when they do the physical exam? How are they approaching and talking to the clients about that? And then how they talk about the plan that they're going to put together and what they assess from it and how they're going to recommend it. How does that transition? And do they talk about forward booking those types of things or not? You will see so many ways to make your business better just by observing it. But one day, observe all of them. If you see at least two appointments each, that would be my line, two to three, that are standard appointments, not like a medical check, but a wellness and a sick appointment, you will see a ton of gold there that you can start sharing best practices. And it's kind of cool to sit around as a team of doctors and share best practices. And I can come in as a, a catalyst as a practice manager and I said, oh, Dr. Stevens, you did this amazingly. Dr. Taylor, you did this really, really well. How do you do that? Let's all talk about it together. We can kind of raise the bar for all of us simultaneously. Coming back into it and getting to another one of your questions is that focus piece. I see a lot of practices that do a lot of things just trying to be everything to everyone. I think that that lacks focus. And so coming into things, there also is a lot of vulnerability. And I see one of the big ones I'm seeing these days is acupuncture. So we have that. We're bringing that into the practice. That's great. We have one doctor who can do it. When that doctor leaves, we can't do it anymore. No one else is certified. No one else is trained. No one else is ready to go. We had one-off thing. We didn't price it really well. We just we had the idea. They liked it. We sent them to the class. Now we're doing it. And is this really making us money or we're not doing any of that analysis after the fact? And we have such a, anytime you have any service that comes down to one name, you're in trouble. Just a key rule with that. If it's something we offer as a hospital, we have to have multiple people who can perform it. If not, we have an issue. We have a hobby for one person. We need to get that to an offering across the board. When the practice I ran, and we just got up and sold, this is interesting to say, uh, but I ran up the practice about a year ago, and we were open five days a week. We did zero weekends. We had no overnights. There was no pet that stayed overnight with us. We did all of our surgery and discharge during the day. 
no kennels at all. We did zero boarding, zero grooming. We were running 30% EBITDA. And we ran the hours we wanted. We did what we wanted. We didn't do any tech appointments that were nail trims. We stopped doing those across the board. And again, the point was we just got really good at our core mission, which was surgery, sick, and well. We saw them five days a week, got them in there. We had it well regimented. We had the processes down. We weren't trying to figure out a bunch of things. There was no laser therapy. There was no acupuncture. There was no house calls. There was a reduction in the number of tech appointments. We wanted our techs in with clients with sick pets, especially last year, versus a bunch of tech appointments where they're doing nail trims. We stopped doing nail trims, referred all that out. We had partners in the area that were grooming, for boarding, for nail trims, for all that stuff. And we were just there focusing on helping people in need. That helped us really ramp up and create a really good practice. And it was a great one for our employees, too. They didn't have to learn 15 things. They didn't have to work weekends or nights or anything else like that. They came in, worked hard for eight hours, went home five days a week, and they had their weekends free. And so really kind of focusing on what is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish here? What type of practice are you trying to be? I think it was a really good one. And then what are the things you're just kind of tacking on because people have asked for it or you think you should do it or you've always done it or it's new and cool? And are those really forwarding who we want to build an entire practice from? If acupuncture is a big piece of it, just use that as an example, great. We should train a lot of people in it. We should really price it well. We should educate all of our clients and all of our wellness appointments or sick appointments where it's appropriate about it. Every doctor should understand it. Every technician should understand it, the benefits, when we use it, how we recommend it. If you're not willing to go to that degree, don't do it. Get your core in there. When I talk about like dentistry in my practice, we are in on dentistry. We're going to talk about with every client, every wellness exam. We're going to show them the teeth every time. We're going to talk to them about either it looks great, keep up the good work, or we're starting to have problems, or we need a dental cleaning, or we have some extractions here. We are talking about that active, and that's a key thing we do in our practice. And so I really like getting focused on things. It was an old Jim Collins thing from his book, uh, Good to Great. You know, get it, the hedgehog principle, get laser focused and be great at a couple of things versus mediocre at 50 of them. I think that's a really good way to do it. Plus, you can get really good at efficiency for those things as well. Absolutely. And then you talked about just the differences in the doctors. Is that going back to training, right? Like how they were trained and who maybe helped them when they came in, or maybe there's a lack of, and it was just like bringing the habits from the other hospitals that they were at. And so being able to observe them and then share the best practices, I mean, that makes total sense, right? But I would wager most people aren't doing anything about that or having those conversations. Standards is huge, especially on medical standards. A doctor is well-trained and you have to give a doctor freedom. There are places that will get so regimented that it's just not fun to work there. Doctors have to have freedom in order to be able to diagnose and prescribe and take actions. But there has to be standards that we work off of. And that's how inventories get out of control. Every doctor likes their own flea and tick. Every doctor likes their own payment. Every doctor likes this. And our inventory is having to support five doctors' individual inventories in pharmacies. That doesn't make any sense. We have to have some framework here that we work within. And usually we bring in a doctor, we observe them just to make sure they're competent, give them a room, let them go. And we talk about the cases. Why aren't we talking about cases? I mean, there is some of the better hospitals I've seen. We'll take a case a week, whatever else, bring it up in front of the entire group, and they'll ask everyone, what would you recommend for tests? How would you diagnose this? What would you recommend for next steps? And it's interesting to hear the differences and start working on those things together. If we're, instead of running four or five independent businesses and we're looking at each other and talking about those things together and then creating some standards of care, which I think are huge. 
And then at the same point, being able to use those standards in order to educate new doctors as they come on and say, here's just how, let me teach you a bunch of things to save you some time. And maybe you'll have some things to make it even better. You get to, this is collaborative, but we're going to do it along the same ways. We're going to train people how to do it right. And then we can talk to them about it from there. So I think that dovetails into training and that does level the playing field a lot more and make us better across the board than just, you know, some people better at certain areas versus others. And thinking through kind of standard of care, best practices, kind of those standard operating procedures. One thing that I've seen, and someone was told that a consult told them to recommend just one pet insurance. And I've heard that that's a really bad idea. And I would love your opinion. I know that's a very specific question, but thoughts on that? Because I feel like you should make that recommendation because you don't know the underwriting of that specific insurer. But I know that's kind of a, a random one, but it was one that I had down that I wanted to ask your opinion on. Specifically pet insurance, because like we will usually use a couple of different services. Like if you're talking about things like uh, if people have problems paying their bill, care credit, scratch pay, and something like that, there's a lot of options out there. I like to have a couple of them that kind of don't overlap completely so we can hit a couple of different ways and help people in different things. For insurance out there, one of the key questions is what are people seeing out there? What type of insurance are you running into? I think that's a big one. I try not to get too limited with that, but I don't want to do everything. I'm not seeing a ton of insurance coming in to practices where 20% of the bills are all paid on insurance. We're not to that point yet. So right now, it's really in its infancy as far as insurance. I would not limit it to that. There's not like five industry leaders or something like that. There's, there's several different places that are kind of doing it, and none of them are doing it to a huge degree enough that I'm only seeing one at any given place. So I... Pet insurance specifically, I wouldn't get too overlocked into, but with everything you do, make sure that it's not something that you're sinking a ton of time into, you get no return off. And even things like filling scripts for 100 pet meds or Chewy, those are processes you make zero money off of, you're giving it to other, you're in the business away. So those are the worst case scenarios. Those should be as efficient as possible. If you're spending hours taking care of some insurance, either you have to make that efficient or you have to find a way to uh, take care of that so it's not a problem with you. So whatever you do, do it well. I don't think you have to go down to one. I'm not going to try to be everything for everyone and take on 50 of them, but there's not 50 to really look at. So a couple, two to three would probably be a good road in there. And I want to train that as part of my training process to the people who have to call those in and get that done so we can do it well. And then just anything else efficiency-wise that you feel like maybe we haven't hit on or touched on that? is helpful as well. I know my like four part question, you hit all those things, but just to kind of give you a little bit more freedom to answer that question. I would look at things like this. There's a concept we call the stop doing list. And so a lot of things we adopt because we had to, or we adopted because we're just picked up during the pandemic. Chewy blew up over the last couple of years and we're doing a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of people that are finding a lot more efficient ways to do things like dealing with those types of scripts. So instead of getting the faxes every morning, filling about and getting on the phone and calling in the Chewy or using their portals for that, I see a lot of people just cutting scripts. You want to go outside? That's good. I'll recommend my own online pharmacy as the first one. Here's an alternative. And if, if you have a really well-educated staff on how to use the online pharmacies, you can compete pretty well, actually. It's unique. But then from that point, if you're going to have to do those types of things, let's make it as painless on our side and just allow the client to do what they need to on their side. The efficiency piece, so I don't want to do, kind of like the acupuncture stuff, I don't want to do a whole bunch of things that don't create a lot of value. I want to get really good at the things I do. The efficiency across the board, as much as we talked about the doctors and the uniformity, if I got good at anything right now, it would be how to do rooms quickly. I want to be able to get people in, 
do just what I need to do so I can give them a good recommendation, diagnose their pet thoroughly, make a recommendation, and get them treated and on their way. I don't want to fall behind with that stuff. As we go throughout the day, I see people snowball, where you know the first appointment is five minutes over, the next one is 15 minutes over because something happened, then we don't catch up, and we're eating into our lunches, or we're staying an hour afterward. Those types of things, if you get good at anything, get your room flow and your appointment flow just lock solid. And that's not just the doctors, that's the technicians, that's the assistants, and that's the receptionists, that's all those people. The other big thing with efficiency is watch all the times that you are paying staff to do nothing. I have seen practices where they come in an hour, hour and a half before the first appointment arrives. They stay an hour or two hours. I've even had one that stayed over two hours, cleaning up at the end of the day with no patients there. And that was a regular thing. That wasn't just a one-off. That was a daily supplement. We're paying like two to three hours a day for times that we're not even seeing a single patient. How can we make that more efficient? And how can we kind of look at what jobs we don't have to do that stop doing this? Or how can we ship them around in ways that make more sense? What do we do in order to make this so we can come in here, see a whole bunch of clients and patients to help them and get out of here? When I was running the practice that I ran last time, we were showing up a half an hour before our first point walked in the door. And we were checking some people in, but we're getting all cleaned up and set and ready. And then we were out within a half an hour at the end of the day, because as those appointments start to wind down towards that end of the day, more and more of our staff are shifting into cleaning roles instead of helping clients because we have kind of get the discharges are done, kind of getting down to the last couple, waiting for those rooms to clear us and close it for the end of the day. And we've been cleaning for an hour before the last person leaves the building. And so kind of being able to ramp up and ramp down effectively and kind of use some of those edges the first appointment you get, if you're running two doctors, you get two appointments at 8 a.m. You don't get to two more appointments till 8.30. So as we get different technicians and stuff like that, we have some free time to really ramp that up and do some things well. And so really leveraging the time that we have staff on already and not adding a whole bunch of buffers around the edges, I think is a good way to look at some efficiency pieces too. Perfect. Love that. Thoughts? And I know you mentioned the online pharmacy piece. What's the advice and guidance you've given on online pharmacy and competing? And is it a valid revenue driver source strengthening relationships is it you're spending too much time and it's you know a zero-sum game and you're not really going to get much out of it what are your thoughts a couple thoughts with it i think you can do it in a way that's effective the best practice i've seen with it had uh launched an online store added and i think it was it was ridiculous they were bigger but they had like twenty or thirty thousand dollars in monthly revenue and their and their in-person pharmacy sales didn't drop at all and so that's a great example of how to do it. I'm not trying to just give up my pharmacy. I'm not trying to transition everything online in some cases, but I can leverage that in really good ways. And the core ways I like to leverage an online pharmacy, number one, I want to be there for the automatic refills and so that people can get that convenience factor. We get more sales out of those auto refills and auto ships and stuff like that. We get better compliance with it. And so we, we kind of like to use it for the refill piece of it there. I'd love to do it to bring in other lines so I didn't want to stock in-house. So if we recommend Perfecto and Lilbegard or whatever else for fleet take heartworm medications, I can still have four of the lines that are available online or different sizes or different strengths. I don't have to carry in in-house. So it allows me to do a really well-tight focused pharmacy and in-house department there, but also have a lot of options there. So not only doing the refills online, but also being able to do things like I give more lines or more different options online that I can do to me is always good. The other big piece for the online pharmacy, one of the first things we did is we told our online pharmacy, whatever you recommend as best practices, we're just going to do it. You recommend we send out emails all the time. We'll give you our list. We'll do all that. 
whatever you think is the best way to use your product, tell us what it is. We're going to do it for at least three months. After three months, we didn't change it. We loved it. And so looking at that type of thing, we're starting out. We had, I have some practices I talked to that they have people that are waiting for that 30 to 40% off coupon in the mail in order to buy their next prescriptions. And we started competing with Chewy at that point pretty well. And some of those things even out a lot. We let them handle our pricing. We let them handle the email marketing piece. We offshore all that to them. Just let them take care of that. We run it the way that they recommend. We gave them our email address. We integrated it. We didn't have any pushback from our clients. A couple of them opted out, but that's normal. I would too if I didn't want it. But the vast majority do. And they use those coupons. That likes it and it helps drive it. So we keep pushing this thing. We're here as a pharmacy. We're going to sell you stuff over the counter and give you stuff. But we're going to move online the refills you don't have to come in every time we're going to move online these other things we can ship to you and if you look at some of the food things food if you get a lot of it there it takes up a big footprint if you have a smaller hospital it's great to take all those big bags of food and ship them up into the cloud as well and be able to get them in there just to free up some more space so i think if you can do it well and again you have to educate everyone there especially reception stuff like that what does this look like when i get a chewy script coming in we're calling them and saying hey our online pharmacy, you can keep it here local with us and help support us. You're basically the same price with the discount I'm going to ship you. And we know the product is good. We recommend them. We can make sure you get the right dose because one of the big things is we want to make sure that it's exactly the right dose and product and everything else like that. We can do that if we're ordering it. If you're trying to order online, a lot of times we'll have to correct that for you, make adjustments, and then back and forth. We can get it right the first time because we're going to put it in your cart for it. And so whatever that messaging piece you build in, uh, that can help convert more people over that practice and then just kind of focus on that. So I do think an online pharmacy is a way to generate additional revenue without cutting into your current pharmacy too much and also providing a valuable service to your clients. I like them. I would definitely be leveraging them. Perfect. As we close out, any thoughts on things we haven't covered or haven't asked about that you think is either timely, it's exciting, it's interesting, caught your attention recently? So two things, I'll do both very quickly because I know we're kind of towards the end of the time. Number one, we're talking about the training, hiring, onboarding, the shortage of people. Some of the cool things I've seen out there and what I've been talking to people about most recently that's kind of really early on is making sure that we can get a tight training program that we can bring anyone in who's never even stepped foot in a vet clinic for a day and get them from day one ramped up and producing as quickly as possible. I would like to be able to hire kennel assistants, CSR, and assistants and wrap them up from no knowledge to producing in as fast as possible, one month, two months, whatever else, and making valuable team members. For the existing team members, I want to have a pipeline for them. I want the assistants to be able to go to tech school. I'm seeing more and more practices out there that are paying for tech school. You're an assistant. You're interested in being a technician, getting the license and everything else like that. We will support you through that process, and you can stay here done seen that happen. And I actually have one practice I talked to in New York that does that with doctors. They'll take their technical staff, they're younger, want to be doctors, and they'll help them through the doctor process. And they actually have a backlog of doctors who want to work with them. Hmm. They're previous employees and went through that process. I don't think everyone could get there and they were a bigger practice. So they had, you know, 80 employees. But the concept, especially down to the technician level, I think is very valuable. With practices that can quickly ramp up someone with no experience to produce in frontline roles and then turn the frontline people into experienced people, quickly and effectively, I think we'll have a huge edge on the hiring side. The other piece of it is I still think veterinarians as an industry are really behind technologically. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to move that forward if we can get some good players in the space to help us with that. 
And so I'm looking at a lot of what that can mean. I'm talking to different people about how we can really leverage technology kind of going forward, make things a little better. I see what's happening on the human side and other places like that. And I'm wondering why we can't do that easily and effectively on our side yet. So looking at that as kind of more of the leading edge stuff there. I think the hiring and onboarding piece is going to be huge, especially if we can do it in the ways I talked about that. No, let's just see where this economy goes in the next six months. That'll be yeah. fun. Well, I was going to say, you basically just set up for our next conversation on the technology piece of the ideas of things that may or may not exist, but how do you take some of those things and embrace it, right? So it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. But yeah, the economy is going to be interesting, right? The crystal ball that we both have is probably a little foggy, maybe broken. Maybe it's in the shop for maintenance. So we'll see. Can you give a, a handoff for folks that maybe haven't connected with you, don't know kind of who you are, how to reach out, how to connect, best ways for that? Sure. Yeah. Best way to reach me, you can look at the website, which is CB or Coppins Business hyphen strategies.com. You can look over there. There's a contact form you can fill out if you want to have anything, or you can just give me a call. My uh, phone number is 616 437 9764. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Leave me a message. I'll call you back and we can talk about anything you want. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. Probably one of those two methods. Perfect. I'll have the website in the show notes. I'll leave the phone off. That way people have to listen to the end to get that. But thank you as always, Jason, for your knowledge and the willingness to share. And this was great as always. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right. So the first job posting that I will read and share on the podcast is going to be a central Indiana private practice equine or companion animal. You can do a little bit of both. You can do one or the other. So there's a little bit of flexibility there. It is in Hamilton County which is the county that I live in. It's a beautiful community, great place to raise a family and be, and the cost of living is fairly affordable. So those are all great things. It is a salary base plus bonus. It is an AHA accredited practice, and there are six doctors today. And the details on the clinic, who it is, all that good stuff is going to be in the show notes. So check it out and apply. And if anyone ever gets a position that they find out through the podcast, please, 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 DM me, find a way to get a hold of me because I would love to make that happen. And again, I'm just doing this to help connect good people with good people. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.